Hello and welcome to the Midweeks with Pastor Rob. That's me. I am very, very grateful for you taking the time to listen to this. I appreciate it very much. I want to continue on with the turning points of church history. We took a substantial break during the summer there, pressed pause on it, made only a little bit of headway. We've got two more chapters to get through. I've been basing this uh, series on a book of the same name, Turning Points in Church History, written by Mark Knoll. And uh, I'm just kind of digesting the material and sharing with you what I've learned. And so if you want to, um, if you're enjoying the material, but you'd like to like the details, you'd like to go a little bit deeper in that, then it's a very easy book to pick up and read through, and I've enjoyed it very much. So today, the turning point that I want to talk about that has come up in the book is the Edinburgh Council for World Missions or World Evangelization. It happened in 1910. So we've gone all the way from the age of the apostles back in the you know, 60s AD or the 70 AD of the fall of Jerusalem. And we've gone all the way through church history up to this point to just 100 years ago, 1910. And what happened is in Edinburgh, Scotland, there was a meeting of about 1,200 delegates of world missionary efforts underneath the covering of the king of Scotland or England at that time, who actually sent, you know, a letter of encouragement to everybody. So that shows what the politics were like there at that time. And they discussed many, many things like how to preach the gospel and how to interact with other cultures and how to train missionaries. But there was a rich expectation that out of this meeting, they could, in the not too distant future, accomplish the task of complete world evangelization, of bringing the gospel to the entire planet. So this turning point's a bit unique because it doesn't launch a phase in church history. It actually kind of summarizes and culminates the rapid expansion of missions and the church in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And then this council that happened right at the beginning of the 1900s was kind of in response to everything that had happened, but looked forward to the future um, warmly and energetically, not knowing, of course, that within about uh, five or ten years, the greatest war that the world had ever seen was about to happen, followed by another world war, and followed by the massive secularization of Europe. And so um, their hopes haven't quite turned out the way they expected, but it really did, was emblematic, excuse me, of a phase in church history of rapid expansion. So before this, you know, we, we've been talking about, I think we left off last on, you know, John Wesley and the rise of pietism, as well as the change in Europe's social structure, uh, looking at the French Revolution. And around this time, before this time, so much of the energy of the church was just put into dealing with the social upheavals that was happening at the time, whether it was um, social upheavals, spiritual upheavals, upheavals, war, um, this this historical uh, event or, you know, joining of events called industrialization where people were coming down off the farms into the cities to find work in factories and the church was just busy ministering to all these different changes so a lot of their energy was just put into kind of surviving and taking care of the people in front of them and as these social upheavals um, lessened things became more stable 
And as the rise of pietism kind of fueled people's hearts to bring God glory and to love the foreign people of the world by bringing the gospel out of Europe, out of North America, into the rest of the world to spread his church, um, it, it launched multiple major missionary societies that sent people um, all around the world and saw beachheads formed in places like China and India and Africa, where there had really been no uh, church or real no missionary work ever before, not with any concerted effort, um, at least by Protestants. You know, the author is is aware that the Catholics were kind of more consistent than the Protestants were at just plugging away at missionary work. I think they were in China and Japan before the Protestants were. Um, but this great movement of Protestant missionary efforts in the late 1700s, early to 1800s, really changed the face of the world. Um, By seeing Christian churches planted or Protestant churches planted in most of the major continents, if not all the major continents throughout the world. Now, as I was reading the book, I noticed that a few of the burdens of the book or the things that were objects of interest were, um, the main thing was, how the missionaries or whether or not the missionaries were interested in creating indigenous leaders. So were the missionaries there just to plant churches for the missionaries or were the missionaries there to raise up indigenous leaders who would then go about the work of missions? Were they there to train new converts in how to spread the church and evangelize on their own? And so uh, many of the earliest pioneers of world missions that were in the late 1700s, early 1800s, that was their goal, to see people saved and come to Christ and then to equip them and encourage them to turn around and then to reach their own people for the Lord and for the gospel. And there are so many famous names from this time of history, whether it's a Hudson Taylor and his wife, whether it would be an Adoniram Judson um, and his wife who gave her life for missions and then he married again, whether it would be um, a John Patton going to the New Hebrides, and he also, his wife, um, gave her life for the Lord and died in the effort. Um, whether it would be, you know, a David Livingston going throughout Africa and exploring Africa, but with the burden of bringing Christ to the heart of Africa in the center of the African nation. There were just so many famous and brave people, men and women both, going to the other side of the world at a time where, you know, it took weeks or months to get there. And some of these missionaries would go having packed their belongings in a coffin, in a pine box, knowing that if they were going to return home, it wouldn't be alive. So they were going to the mission field to die um, for Christ. And some of the great missionary movements um, include the Moravians. I don't know if you've ever heard of them before. They were um, displaced German people, and they found protection under the the wealth and influence of this guy named Count Zinzendorf. And as if my memory serves me right, they held a 100-year prayer meeting. So these kind of 24-7 prayer furnaces that you hear about nowadays, I think they had one of the first ones where, um, at least in the Protestant world, where they were praying for 100 years, and especially focused on missionary efforts, and they would send people throughout the world for Christ. And it was Moravians who were on the boat with John Wesley when he was really impacted by their relationship and their faith in Christ. 
especially because during the storms of the travel, he was really afraid of dying. But the Moravians were at such peace, trusting God as they were on missions. And so he was just really impacted with this, there's something missing. And eventually God did meet him and fill him with the Holy Spirit and really changed his life. And he in turn went and transformed the world in a major way. But we're talking about world missions. And just, uh, you know, one of the things about doing church history in the 1800s and following is it gets so complicated because the the gospel has spread around the world into multiple areas. And so there's so much going on. It's not like you can just say, you know, this is how the bishops and the Roman emperor related. You know, this is what Augustine was up to. There's so many things going on in every continent of the world as uh, people were trying to establish churches around the world for Christ. The other thing that one of the other things that the author wants to bring up is just that there's so much pushback. And he has a page where he just lists tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of recorded um, executions, persecutions, death by persecutions in people groups who have come to faith. And then the culture pushes back against it, whether it's in Africa or China or other Asia, your Asia, sorry, um, Oceania um, countries where the culture pushes back and just ends up killing thousands and thousands and thousands of converts. And so it was it was really bloody work. And on top of that, though, um, he ends his chapter by talking about four different examples of how um, these missionaries worked. And all of them kind of evaluated on how um, much the indigenous people were able to take up the work themselves and he was looking especially at uh, Africa and the Zionist movement and a guy named um, Harris, I think it was William Wade Harris, William Wade Harris and a bishop named Cowley, who was actually an Anglican. And there's one more, it slips my mind at the moment, but just how different uh, African groups related to the missionaries who responded to them, uh, who were driving them on and whether or not they became independent missionary workers. And so this is a turning point in church history. The Edinburgh Council of World Missions that was the culmination of massive expansion at great cost throughout the entire world, but also um, was a little bit tragic because within a few years after this missionary conference that thought we could see the world evangelized within our lifetime, massive world military conflicts rocked the entire world and actually contributed to, I think, a loss of faith in many of the nations that that participated in the war. And so this is a turning point church history, 1910 World Missionary Conference. And then next week, we're going to finish off this series by looking at more recent events, uh, Vatican II and the Louisiana um, missionary conference and just see how things have changed in half a century after this event. Be blessed.